Hi, Chris. How are you? Good evening, Rod. Yeah, all is well. Here we are on Sunday, the 30th of April. We may have skipped a week for those avid listeners out there. So it's episode 66 and we're in the full thrust of spring. Yeah, we are. And I apologize. It's almost entirely my fault that we skipped an episode. It was quite hard with jet lag and everything on a trip to Boston to get all of the things in and quite exhausted after a day and just the time difference was just tricky. Yeah, no, I get that. And I think to be fair, though, and people are going to see it in the show today, this is in two weeks to, like of not doing a show. It's quite quiet on the tech scene at the moment. There's not a lot that's coming out, which I find a bit weird that even Apple haven't really been doing that much at the moment. There's lots of rumours, but there's not actually anything concrete. Microsoft haven't been up to a huge amount, nor is really Nintendo. Sony haven't got any amazing games coming out right now. So it's, it's just all really quiet. All quiet on the Western Front, as they used to say. They did used to say that, although I've still got to watch that film. Uh, yeah, I think the reason it's quiet is everybody's kind of waiting for Apple to release their things at WWDC. It's quite a nice time they'll get a bit of a break before we sort of get beyond this and into summer and then into the madness that's sort of uh, Techtober and things like that. Yeah, I guess so. I did wonder whether we'd have seen a few things from Apple just to clear some things out of the way, because sometimes you get that, you get a few little things drop before the event but we, we really haven't had anything so it's gonna yeah it's gonna be interesting i think it'll be interesting to see what apple do and then whether it follows i think we've got a google event coming up as well which I think we're going to reference in the show we are anyway should we get into follow-up let's get a follow-up because we've got a fair bit it's gonna be an unusual show this one we're going to do follow-up in the news and then we're just going to move on to app and thing of the week because there's quite a lot of news because we weren't here for two weeks and we'll see where we are after that so let's dive into follow-up okay so first off i think we've got a bit of keyboard follow-up which you instigated. I did instigate. I take full responsibility for this. So I bought my Keychron V1 keyboard, which I love. It's great. I didn't get a chance to play with it very much before I went off. It arrived the day I was leaving. In fact, it's the cheaper one in the Keychron line, it must be said. It's a 75% keyboard. It has arrived configured for, well, certainly for an Apple user, although it comes with the box in the box with all the keys if you want to prize them out and turn it into being a Windows keyboard which I very much appreciate. Should you want to do those kinds of things, you can. It's obviously got all the various Mac keys on it for expose and the command key and all that kind of stuff. Nicely laid out. It was interesting when I plugged it in my Mac, my Mac did the usual thing of press the key to the left of the shift key so I can identify what you are, which I was used to. It then went, press the key to the right of the other shift key to identify what you are. And I thought, oh, I've never seen that one before. No, I hadn't seen that either, so that was interesting. That was interesting. So it worked out what it was. I haven't had any slightly odd keys pressed yet. It's a full RGB keyboard, which I hadn't appreciated. So like a gaming keyboard I had, where the lights will continuously cycle through the various colors and things, which you can stop. You can actually program it to just show one color or no colors or sort of more go more slowly or speed up. It's all in a JSON file, which I haven't touched, I will be honest. Yeah, that sounds probably a bit more in-depth than what I would like. I'd rather just have a control panel and I can just drag some sliders around. That, that's what I would want, I think. I think you get that on Windows, but it lets you configure it for whatever you plug it into. So whether you want it to be a Windows machine or a Mac or a Linux box or presumably even an iPad because it comes with a USB cable in the box, USB-C cable in the box and an adapter. So you could potentially plug it straight into your iPad if you wanted and then configure it exactly how you wanted. So from a functionality point of view, considering it's the cheaper end of, of their, line, their line, it's 
extremely solid. And I noticed that the more expensive keyboards are made of metal rather than plastic, but this is a very well put together thing. And one thing that really, it's a, sm it's a small thing, but I really liked about it is the feet on this keyboard have like a two stage thing. Again, thrilling radio for everybody except Chris, but you've got, if you want to click it out so it stands up, you've got sort of one level. And then it's got another bit of plastic you can pop out on top of it to give you as much height off the ground as you want to get it, which I just really appreciate. People used to do that though, didn't they? Like back, back in the day. I think they only got a one level though. They were they're either up high or flat on the ground. Yeah, maybe maybe you're right. I remember them having legs. You are quite right. Maybe it was just one level, but interesting. Yeah. And as for the keyboard itself, they're not square keys, flat like they are on a Magic keyboard. They're sort of like keyboards used to be. They have a bit more shape to them. They've got just a nice bit of tactility, I've got to say. If you hear extra clicking in this podcast, it's because I'm using my new keyboard as we as we talk about it. But so far, I'm really impressed. I quite like the colors that they've gone with. It's nicely muted. There's just the right amount of bounce in a key. So I know we were talking last time we met about what the difference are between cherry red or cherry brown keys and all the rest of it. I don't know what these are. I just went for the default setting and it's just exactly what I wanted it to be in a keyboard. So I'm really pleased so far. Yeah, and I, th I think that's what's put me off buying one like that is I just don't know what I'm ordering. But what do you think of the build quality? Is it good? Because it, it it wasn't ridiculously expensive, was it? It was 75 quid and then they charged me some delivery as well, which I hadn't been expecting, but hey-ho, it came from China. They obviously had one in the factory. Well, they obviously built one in the factory for you because you can configure them built or you can build them yourself so they're obviously sitting there ready to go in all the pieces and they'll put them together before the cinema i'd say the build quality is as good as you'd get with an apple keyboard and it's nowhere near the price if you were to go to apple and order one of their magic keyboards it's not even close to being that they're really expensive especially if you get the thumb print reader built in the full full size ones nearly 200 pounds i think in the uk yeah that's that's a shed load of money and i don't think they're i mean they're good keyboards but they're not that good it's a lot of money, I think, for what it is. Okay, be be pleased with it. First impressions are good. Do you think you're going to configure it much? I think I would be tripping if the lights were kept flashing on it and, and doing all that craziness. It doesn't bother me that much. My last gaming keyboard did this, but it had a button built into it. You could press it, and it would just go brown. So the lights wouldn't be going all the time. I'll see how much it annoys me. I mean, I quite like the fact that it's backlit, frankly. It's quite nice to be able to see desktop keyboards that are backlit. Because let's face it, even the Magic Keyboard isn't backlit to see what's going on when you're typing. So I'm going to leave it and see how I feel. And I might look into what can I do with the colors beyond that. Fair enough. That sounds good. And you, so you basically did inspire me because I went down the rabbit hole of, oh, I like my Logitech one, but it's a bit big. I want the, the smaller one. And I've, as I think I said on the podcast, I've been looking at a mechanical keyboard. So I went and ordered the Logitech MX Mechanical Mini, and I got the one for the Mac because I've used a Mac or an iPad. And you've spurred me on, like yours, I don't find 65%. It's got the return key and then a row to the right of it. I can't remember what the different numbers are. Is that 75%? 75%. 75%. So mine's 75% as well. It is backlit by only one colour. It will do snazzy effects like where the lights sweep across it and where they all pulsate or they randomly light up, which I'm not too fussed about. I just like a general backlight. But I ordered it because I thought, you know what? I wouldn't mind to give a mechanical keyboard a try. Super impressed with the previous Logitech MX keyboard I had, but it was, it was the, the bigger one with the numpad, which I don't really want. Do you know what? I like it and I'm glad you spurred me on to buy it. I know you were trying to encourage me to buy something that wasn't Logitech, the big corporate giant in America, but actually I quite like their stuff. They definitely make some nice things. So, so I've ordered it. I've set it up. 
it's got three bluetooth channels on it which is perfect for me it charges over usb-c it's got legs as well but only only one set of legs so i can just adjust it one height and it just worked i've got it set on my ipad on my mac which is you know option one and option two for me and then obviously sometimes i use i can't remember what it's called is it continuity where you can have your ipad next to your mac and drag over to it and that that works really well too so it's just a really nice nice keyboard i do wish i could buy a trackpad because logitech used to do one but had multiple bluetooth channels on it because i can do it with my keyboard i can't do it with my trackpad which is a little frustrating i'm super pleased with it the build quality is probably on the par with what you're talking about it was slightly more expensive it was about 125 pounds in the uk but it's yeah seems really good like i say nice build quality it's quite heavy so a lot heavier than i thought it would be quite quite condensed little unit there's not much you know chrome around the edges as it were but like yours it's got the beveled keys but yeah really nice keyboard would recommend if anybody's thinking of flirting getting into it but equally but Sandra, i'd recommend your one because it's a lot cheaper it is a lot cheaper and i think having that sort of slightly that we could go down a whole rabbit hole of mac peripherals actually where for years and i watched a youtube video about this recently we've just kind of accepted what Apple has given us, where it must be the best thing because it's Apple and it, it pairs well with Bluetooth and all this kind of stuff. But actually, they've been very average for a very long time. The Magic Mouse in particular is a deeply average mouse. It's very low. You've got to charge it by turning it upside down and spearing it like a turtle. The only really good thing about it is that it scrolls when you when you slide the top of it. And I'll, I'll try and remember to put a link to the YouTube video I watched in the, in the show notes, but they were actually testing it for accuracy. So when you run it across a desk and, and try and hit the same point every time, and it was far inferior to something like a Logitech MX mouse, far inferior. You'd miss the target quite a lot of the time. So as Mac users were conditioned to thinking it's the best, but actually the dots per inch and things like that that are built into the optical sensors in the bottom of Magic Mouse aren't very good. The keyboards don't really have an awful lot of press. We accept it because it's what comes with it, or now you get a fingerprint sensor on it way, but on a lot of podcasts I listen to, people are destroying their Mac keyboards just to get the fingerprint sensor out of it and sticking it on the bottom of their desks so it can log in. So that doesn't say a lot about how much an actual typist wants to make use of it. And you think of somebody like Gruber, he's still using Mac classic keyboards from who knows when because he likes the clickiness of them. So I just wonder if we've been sort of led down a rabbit hole by Apple of the quality of their peripherals. Yeah, quite possibly. And they've moved at a snail's pace with doing any innovation. So I'm not surprised... Logitech has a better, more accurate mouse because the Magic Mouse has been around forever. I really do like the Magic Mouse, though. I really enjoy using it. I, I can't explain why. I just find it like, oh, I'm in work mode. I'm using using my Magic Mouse. So I do like the Magic Mouse. I use a trackpad a lot of the time because of using an iPad. It's built for a trackpad. It's not built so well for a mouse. But yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you. Maybe I need to go and look, look for a third-party trackpad at some point. Yeah, and there are third-party mice that will do scrolling as well. For example, the Microsoft Arc. I think it's called, also has the same sort of surface, but is actually more ergonomic. I did notice this week, actually, that Microsoft were not were rebranding all the peripherals as Microsoft Surface peripherals and not Microsoft Mouse, Microsoft Keyboard. So that's interesting, too. Yeah, agreed. Look, for many years I had an Arc. It's fantastic because you just snap it, in essence, and you put it in your bag, and it's flat, like a remote control. And then when you're running, you use it, you, you, you snap it the other way, in essence, and it turns on the Bluetooth, it pairs, but then it's active again. It's a really well-made piece of kit. And I did look again, the second one a while ago, but for whatever reason, part of the idea. But yeah, they have rebranded as, as Surface. Should we move on? Because otherwise we're going we to talk peripherals the whole time. Well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I'm just, I'm putting in the link, show notes now, before I forget, the link to Mac users deserve a better mouse. So that will be there for everybody. Okay, cool. So how was how is your SIM card in America? Yeah, I sat in the departures lounge at Heathrow 
and thought, right, let's sort out the SIM card then. So I went to the T-Mobile app, T-Mobile prepaid SIM it's called, downloaded it, put some details in, it offered me some choices. It wanted to know where in America it was going to be, I presume, so I'd get a cell phone number that was local to Massachusetts in this case. So if I looked up the zip code of the hotel I was going to be staying in, put that in and let me proceed. I um, put in my debit card details and clicked done and it went done, 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 activating, failed to activate. And I presume that's because I wasn't in America, but it's still a slightly worrying message when you get it. In the meantime, it went ahead and added a second SIM card to my phone. So have you had two SIM cards in your phone? Yes and no, but both the same number when I was moving from physical to E. Well, this gives you, the in the top right-hand corner where you get the signal strength, two signal strength meters. It's it's a really odd experience. So yeah, that, I haven't I've never seen that that piece of it where you've actually actively used to. So that was fine, and then inside the 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 data app, you can designate which one is primary and which one is secondary. So there is an amount of manage management for it. And you can say use this one for data, use this one for calls, and you can sort of swap between them. Anyway, that seemed to work. I jumped on the plane. More about the plane in a minute. I landed in America. I got a text from Smarty, my UK provider, going, "What the hell are you doing? We don't know anything about you traveling. How dare you? You're getting nothing off us." And I thought, oh, okay, that's useful. In the meantime, the American SIM card burst into life. I got my 30 gigs of data. It, it came up 5G and two little UB or UW symbols next to it. So I guess that's ultra wideband. So for the first time in my phone's existence, it was getting its absolutely full 5G, full fat diet of data. I was going to say, I didn't think our phones did ultra wideband, but maybe I'm thinking millimeter wave because the ones that get sold in the US have got like a little lozenge on the side that looks like where you dock your ipad pencil that little you know long thin lozenge bit but ours don't have that but maybe i'm thinking millimeter wave and not ultra wide band could be don't know anyway i'd never seen the symbol before and all i can say it was chuffing fast fantastic that's what so, we need over here why, yeah, we got that? why haven't we got that exactly so from that point of view it was it was very straightforward my colleague who i was traveling with did the same thing because he wanted to be able to send and receive get and receive, make calls as well he found out to his cost after spending 40 dollars on the sim card that yeah you do get unlimited texts and you do get unlimited calls but only to american numbers oh so that, that's, a, that's quite a disclaimer that's quite a disclaimer so it's an important thing to be aware of that yes you will get data yes you'll get a u.s number but no, you won't be able to make calls back to the UK. I guess that's where you need to use FaceTime or FaceTime audio calls to use the data up instead. Yeah, which isn't always possible for everybody if you're phoning a phone number, which was the case for him. So he managed to move a lot of his meetings to Team or Zooms, but for some he was just knackered on, which was unfortunate. So from that point of view, it was all very straightforward. The odd, oddness happened between it getting a little confused between my UK number and sending iMessages and things like that. I shouldn't call them iMessages anymore. It really didn't like the fact that I had two numbers in the phone. And because it was a UK number I was that was associated, we've talked about this kind of thing before, a UK number that was associated with and tried to send a, an iMessage message it wouldn't deliver it and i was having to forcibly send to somebody's email address so lots of things were sort of timing it and it was a bit of a pain i gotta be honest from that point of view that is interesting because i did text you and it came up green and i was like why is rod now green that's odd and i don't know whether you got it until you're back but i've actually changed my iMessage setup to actually use my email now i've moved to the custom domain i've said use my email when creating new conversations and i'm trying to divorce myself from my mobile number because at some point i want to dump my mobile number because lots of salespeople seem to have got a hold of my number and keep calling me on it so i'm actually trying to slowly just ignore my number and get people just to iMessage me at my email address which feels odd because it's my email address not but it's taken me a while to get used to that concept and i 
wish I did it years ago now. Yeah, it's fair, but not everybody's going to do that. So occasionally people are still going to want to text you and you're still going to need a number yeah. for that. So there's no getting away from it. No, that is true. There's no getting away from it. But so, so did your UK number then just, was it in stasis for the five days you were away? Yeah, I actually switched it off in the data menu, like I was talking about before. I said, off for this, off for that. And then it started, the phone started going, well, I'm going to delete it and it's not going to be active for this. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll just ignore you for 28 days. So that wasn't very seamless, I got to say. Yeah, because you can't be the only person doing this. No. Like, you can't be that rare for the amount of iPhones sold and the amount of international travel that happens. Yeah, and there were British people in the hotel, there were British people all over Boston, so and, and people from Spain and Venezuela and, you know, all over the world as well. So this wasn't a completely straightforward experience. Don't get me wrong, I was very pleased with it. I was glad I had data. I was able to call an Uber. The, the weather was appalling the first day. And, and walking around Boston was problematic. So uh, being able, as the only one of the three of us who were traveling who actually had data when we were out and about, until my, fr my, uh, my other colleague bought a SIM card anyway, that was extremely useful to have, be able to have f fast access to data that quickly. So from that point of view, that was a success. Yeah, I, yeah, you do kind of need data now to do nearly anything, don't you? When I went to Spain recently, as I landed, my, my provider EE texted me and went, it's going to cost you £5 a day to use your your tariff over here. And then I could just use my tariff as normal. I have no idea what that looks like if I went outside of the Eurozone. So that's one for me to explore at another point, I think. Yeah, it's me taking one for the team that. And then just to finish off the thought on this is that I immediately got two spam calls on my American number, immediately. Where did they get that? I, I, I don't know. I presume there's somebody at the provider goes, oh, new SIM card active and sends it on or it's listed in a directory somewhere. My colleague who'd been trying to make calls back to the UK with his American number got seven or eight. Wow. Because the whole reason I want to change my number is not to get spam phone calls. Yeah, well, it's just as well you don't live in America because it's far worse there. But that was just my observation. I think it's a useful service if the way UK networks are sort of diverging from the rest of the world and Europe increasingly, it's useful to have this ability in our phones just to not even visit a shop, buy a service when you land, bang, you're good to go. And i tell you one thing, it does make me think next time I'd try the Aerolo service where I didn't get a number because I don't need a number. I just need the data. And that probably would have been a more seamless place for me to go. In fact, my, my email sending problem would have probably been solved because well, you don't have a number, therefore you got to default maybe to this email. I don't know. Yeah, that might have helped a little bit. You're right. And like you say, don't you want a number because it just confuses the situation, especially a short stay like you're doing. Yeah. So that was a, that was a fairly good experience. That's all i got to say about eSIMs other than quite a good thing. Well done. Is it worth talking a little bit about some tech on the flights? Yeah, definitely. Because I have no idea what you get on an F, you know, flight these days. Obviously, I flew recently, but it was a very, very short flight with no tech. Well, that's all, I've got, all I learned. So long haul, I flew out on a carrier called JetBlue, which is, you may not have heard of if you're American, you have, you have heard of because they're quite a big deal in America. The way they were portrayed to me in the media is that they're the American equivalent of something like EasyJet. Not a Ryanair, but an EasyJet, where you are getting a more basic service, but there's nothing wrong with it. They're very efficient and they go on and do it. And that was my impression. And then I flew back on British Airways, which is... You'll know British Airways. They're a traditional British carrier. You know what you get from British Airways. They have a certain quality level they try and get over and they try and hit that. So I had low expectations of JetBlue and higher expectations of British Airways, suffice to say. The JetBlue flight was a small-ish Airbus A321neo. So that is literally three seats, companionway, three seats. So the same plane you'd probably get if you were flying to Mallorca or Tenerife or somewhere like that. 
Yep, sounds more like what I went on to Spain. Yeah, a little bit bigger than a 737, but a new plane, only a year old. It was excellent. (laughs) Absolutely excellent. It's the longest it's been on quite a small plane, I must say. It had free Wi-Fi from the off. They just turned it on. They didn't say anything about putting your phones into flight safe mode or anything else like that. It was just like, yep, there's free Wi-Fi on this plane. Have at it. Try not to make FaceTime audio or video calls was the only sort of thing. If you want to stream YouTube, you could crack on. Wow. Was it, did it perform? Like, was it possible to watch? Yep. Yep. Like video? Well, I didn't, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't try. It was just so entranced with the fact I could text, I could email, I could send. I was taking pictures of whales as I was flying over whales. It was such a clear day and sending them. I'm going, there's Swansea Bay, you know, there's Dublin. It was incredible, actually, how how beautiful and clear day it was. Yeah, yeah, that is kind of cool. As much as I like the air gap of going on an airplane and turning my phone off, but it's kind of cool. You can do it and text people, I guess. Yeah, so that was really cool. The in-flight entertainment system was a nice big screen in front of you. There was like a business class area, which I wasn't in, unfortunately, which had the full-on sort of lie-down bed sort of experience for those that wanted to do the six-and-a-half-hour flight in that sort of mode. But it was perfectly fine. Decent amount of legroom for, for steerage where it was. But I was just so impressed with the Wi-Fi. And actually, the food was good as well. The cabin crew were excellent. They kept you occupied. They came around. And again, because I had the EasyJet thing in mind, I thought it was going to be paying for everything. But no, it was all included. They came out. You got you sat down. And the second you sat in your seat, a menu popped up going, right, what do you want to order for your lunch? And you got two choices from that. You could configure your dessert. And they came around and they gave you what you ordered. Here, here you go, Mr. Middleton. That's what we ordered. Exactly what they knew in the seat I was in. That's quite cool. Yep. Big choice of films. There was, I don't know, 50 or 60 films on the in-flight thing, plus a bunch of TV shows. You could have live news. So I was looking around me. People had Sky News live around them on the plane as they were flying. That's kind of cool, isn't it? I'm curious to know, though, how many people used the in-flight entertainment against their iPad, their phone? Like, it would be interesting to know the ratios. From what I was seeing, most people are just sat back and stuck the in-flight entertainment on. Okay, maybe that's quite a good thing because it's like, oh, maybe I'll do something different. You yeah, because I've, I've brought some stuff with me, but I'll do something different. Yeah. The planes I've all been on have no screens on them because it's a budget airline and everybody just brings their, their mobiles or, or their iPads. Yeah, but so is this a budget airline. And, and this was the thing, you could you could stream your iPad or your phone to the, to the screen. It had airplay built into it. I mean, it was a really quite impressive experience, I've got to say. And again, I, could, I can't... I can't give them enough credit, really. The cabin crew were excellent. The pilots were excellent. They kept you absolutely well informed what was going on. It was a very smooth from beginning to end experience. And it, I, I was just thoroughly impressed with JetBlue. And I've got to look at the price. It says like an advert for JetBlue now. I've got to look at the prices of them since, just flying back and forth to America. And in July, given that we're in what, what April now, in 22, you can fly to New York and back in steerage where I was for £406, which seems like a really good deal to me. That seems like a very good price, I'll be honest. That's, yeah, I'd be on board with that. And the same price for business class was £1,800 a seat, which again is a lot, but it's a damn sight less than you'd pay on British Airways or Virgin Atlantic or Emirates or one of the others. Yeah, and, and it, well, it sounds like a very good experience. So that was JetBlue. And on the other side of my sandwich, we've got British Airways, which was, for the plane geeks, a 787, which is the first time I've won one of them. It's Boeing's new Dreamliner. So I, what I will say is, what a quiet aeroplane. Is that like the double-decker? No, that's a, that's an A380. That's an Airbus A380. Right, okay. So this is Boeing's next-generation plane, which has basically got carbon fiber wings. It is an extremely quiet airplane. And one of the most noticeable thing about it is that it doesn't have window shades anymore to stop the sun coming in. It's got these sort of digital glass, polarizing glass things where you can press and hold a button on the side of it and the windows turn. 
sort of opaque. Yeah, that's that's also quite cool. So just to sort of finish up the story here, British Airways also have in-screen in displays, had about the same sort of choice, I'd say, to be fair to them as JetBlue. If you wanted Wi-Fi, you could pay £7, no, it was less than that, £3.50 and get text messaging. Or you could pay £16 and get full internet. So I thought, no, I'm not going to pay for it. If you were first class, you could put in your, your name and your seat number and you could get free Wi-Fi. And that seems fair enough. You pay an awful lot more for first class seats. But they weren't even giving business class passengers free Wi-Fi. Wow. It's bonkers, isn't it? Just just looking at the 787 online, that is one chunky looking plane. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I, I will say it was a lot quieter than I was expecting. And that's what it, it's called a Dreamliner because it's dreamy. It's sort of you quietly sp- sort of speed along. And from that point of view, it was really impressive. I thought it might because you all get beds on it, but obviously not. I wish. I really wish. <laughs> uh, I was sat behind a guy who immediately shoved his seat as far back as it would go in the cabin crew. And this gets to my point about British Airways. The cabin crew didn't pull him up on it. So he took off with the seat fully reclined and left it fully reclined for the whole thing. And that's my personal hatred of anybody flying is that they do that to you. But for the cabin crew yeah. not to pick him up. Agreed. More like knob. So the food was terrible. <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. It was... Really, not what was I was expecting. I had I had higher hopes for British Airways. I must say, that is disappointing. I, we don't. I've normally been on a flight long enough to eat on that on there, so it's not a problem I've had. I did have one flight recently though, where somebody got on behind us and they brought a whole Burger King on with them, like the whole family of six. So the plane just stank a Burger King for four hours. It was disgusting. That's just what you want. So. To be fair to British Airways, the quality of the flight was excellent. You know, it was a nice, clean plane. I had no issues from that point of view. I just felt. I felt they were behind the competition, and that's not a great place for what's meant to be the premier carrier in the UK when the budget carrier from another country is actually significantly better. Yeah, do you think they're just trading off their name and their brand cachet rather than actually following it up with the goods, but their brand won't last forever? Well, to bring this back to tech, British Airways have had a continuous problem in the last few years with IT issues causing their planes not to be able to fly, air traffic control things, not knowing where the fleet is, not going on what's going on with staff. And I just wonder if all those you know, problems are impacting all the way down the line. And that's not a great place for an airline to be in. No, it's not good, is it, at all? No. It is, you know, it's worrying. You certainly have not inspired me to fly with BA. No, my other colleague who flew back 15 minutes later on Virgin that was leaving Boston Airport at the same time sounded like he had a much better time on Boston. But of all the carriers, and he flew out in JetBlue with me as well, actually, I've got to say that JetBlue has impressed me more than any airline I've been on, other than Emirates in a long time. Emirates just sounds like money, though, to me. Yeah, it wasn't cheap and it wasn't business class again. Steerage as usual for me, but that was a, also an excellent experience. And that was the double-decker plane. That was an A380. Ooh. Yeah, I know. All my travelling, eh? Far more than me. I've flo- flown an A380 twice, once with Singapore Airlines and once with Emirates, and both were excellent. Mm. I love the idea of travel, but don't like the realities of it, I think. Uh, as long as you've got a good book, I'm happy. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. Okay, I've bored you enough with airlines. While I was in Boston, I got to go to an Apple store and I made a new purchase, and I've been talking about it in this show for a while. I finally bought myself the new Apple TV 4K. Ooh, what made you go for this? Well, it was $149, which they're £169 in the UK. And I figured with the exchange rate, I'm actually doing pretty well on that. I'm not going to get it so cheaply again. So I thought, while I'm here, I'll grab one. Okay. But why do you need another Apple TV? Have you got a TV without one? I can't remember. I've got a TV without one. So I had an Amazon box on the smaller TV in the dining room. 
I've been inspired by you. Who I like a consistent experience, man. So that's what I've done. I've now got three Apple TVs for the house, and it gives me a chance to try the HomePods and stereo on the TV behind me, which I, I, I want to try the eARC thing as well with the two HomePods. Now my HomePods are becoming slightly surplus to requirements, it must be said. So I think it's a good good way to try it. Yeah, no, it's a good idea. So the consistency thing, big tick, because it's very family-friendly. The HomePods in eARC mode, as you can probably see in the background, I've got a bright orange HomePod and there's another one here. Um, the eARC thing seems to work a lot better with all the recent upgrades, to be fair. It's been seamless in my office. Well, we've, we will see, I guess, from my point of view as well. It's either that or I'm going to get another Sonos. I need to get the right one. Beam to sit under this TV behind me, which is the smaller of their soundbars. Oh, okay. That'd be good. Have you noticed any performance improvements on it? Because it's meant to be faster. The Apple TV 4K? Yeah. Which is snappily named the same as the last Apple TV 4K. And the one before that. Yeah, which Apple really needs to sort that out generation-wise. The only difference, I couldn't... Honestly, say I'd noticed it was an awful lot faster. It was deeply irritating signing into it again. Oh, okay. Deeply irritating because you sign in for the first time and it goes, talk about first-run experience. Bring your iPhone close to your Apple TV and we'll do things like set up your Wi-Fi password and all that kind of stuff. And you think, this is going to be great. It's going to be so straightforward. And you do that and it goes, yep, thanks, I'm on the Wi-Fi. And you're like, okay, that's useful. And then I'm looking at it going, where are all my apps? Where's Disney Plus? Where's Where's Netflix? You then need to go in, assign a default user, which I had to sign on my Apple account again to do. Sync home screen, which is another setting buried away somewhere in the settings thing. And then it brought all the apps over, but it didn't sign into any of them. Not one. So you have to re-sign into Netflix, Apple, Apple, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, all four, all of them. And some of those apps are really bad about remembering passwords and things like that. In fact, it didn't even give me the option to fill in from the iPhone keyboard thing. It was trying to get me to do the Siri, speak your password down the road. And Siri doesn't like my voice. It was a real pain. I would never tell Siri a password. That's never going to work, is it? I usually don't have that much trouble with it, but it's been a while since I've set one up from afresh. But it is frustrating that your apps then appear after you turn on home screen sharing. and But yeah, Prime doesn't know who you are or Netflix. And that is a bit tense, I think. And to be fair to both Prime and Disney+, Plus, you fire it up and it goes, oh, open it up on your phone, click, accept this is an app you recognize, click, and it was done. It was installed and up and running. Netflix, no. Put in your, put in your password. Put in your password again. Have you sure you got your email address right? Oh, it was painful. Netflix, they don't want you to share that password, so they probably want to make it as hard as possible. That is possible. But so far, so good. I've now got three Apple TVs of various generations. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, more news as I get it, and I'll report back on the what the stereo sound sounds like. Yeah, and I do. I'm curious to see if you have, if I'm a canary in the coal mine and it's good, if it's good for everybody, or whether I'm a unicorn and for some reason it just seems to work for me. Fair enough. Good. I wasn't here for the UK system-wide text alert. Do you want to tell us how that went down? Yeah, I was actually in a fast food chain at the time celebrating my son's football win with the rest of the football team. And I had forgotten about it. And actually some parents I was with just mentioned it like 10 minutes previous, which was odd because I'm the IT guy. You'd have thought I'd be up, up on these things. It actually went off and every, rang everybody's phones about a minute, minute earlier or appeared to in, in the uh, restaurant we were in. Seemed to work okay. I know there's been a few people complaining they didn't get it for ages and some people got it early, like I say. But on the whole, I thought it was quite successful for something that's never been done before. Is interesting. The people that didn't get it, I wonder, did they not get it because they were out of service? Like, I, I don't know how the mechanics of this work. But I did wonder, would you get it because you're on the UK network? Obviously, your phone wasn't working right. Or would you not get it 
because you're out of the country. But I, I didn't really know kind of what the parameters of sending the message was because you can do them geolocation based and things. Well, I was on the airplane when it happened because we were all, all of us in the plane were going, anybody get the alert? And none of us got the alert. So I can speak for all the, okay. all, all the people on the plane for that point. Some of which would have been in airplane mode and all the rest of it. I didn't get it when I landed. My SIM card was back in service. So it must be geolocated in the UK, which makes me think, would Americans and other and visitors from France get the UK network alert just because they were in the UK? I don't know how that works. But as a thought. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Apparently it comes off cell towers, so I'm probably in the hindsight not surprised you didn't get it. You can turn it off in your phone, though, which I was I quizzed somebody I was sat with. Why would you want to turn it off if it's an emergency alert? But they had a really good point. They said, well, you know, it, they reported on the news that if somebody, say, a victim of, of domestic abuse at home and they had a, a secret phone that their other half didn't know about, that you may turn it off on that phone so that it doesn't make a noise, you know, on Sunday afternoon. So I kind of get that, but you... It seems to be a setting you really don't want to turn off. Yeah, my network, Smarty, I've said that, so I'm giving them free advertising this podcast as well, actually emailed me to say that very thing. If you are a vulnerable person, you may want to go into settings, and they said exactly how to do it, how to switch it off, if you did want to make sure your potentially abusive partner didn't find out about your spare phone. So I thought that was very good of them to do that. I've put a link in the show notes that quite a few users on the network 3 didn't get the alert. So maybe those people that said they didn't get it were on the network three. It's also worth saying that in Wales, that the, a different alert was sent. that actually had Welsh first and then an English translation as part of the alert too. So to be fair, they were thinking about that. That's quite cool. I'll be honest, I didn't even know this feature was in our phones. And I'm curious to know how long has it been in there? Was this a new thing? And now we're actually starting to use it. I think American networks have always had it. It's been a requirement for cell phones on their service that they've had it. So obviously it's something that they're trying out in the UK. So if I recall correctly, was it Hawaii? They sent one got sent by mistake. They said missile inbound or something like that. And it was just it was a test and it panicked a lot of people in Hawaii. That would have been a few years ago. So these things have been in phones for a while. That does ring a bell. But it's just something I was yeah, for whatever reason, largely unaware. But anyway, I thought it seemed largely to work fine. They should definitely test it again if they've had some issues there. Yeah, 2018, there was a false missile alert in Hawaii. Well, that is a bad one to, to I, get a mistake on. I will put the link in the show notes for those that are interested. Should we move on to the okay. news? Okay, yeah, let's do some news. So we've got a bit of follow-up for two weeks, to be fair. But yeah, news, we've, we've got a few sections of news because we, we thought we'd not do the main show, but just do news. So I've grouped a few together. So first up, we've got advertising, basically. So apparently the future of streaming is ads is first up, reported on The Verge. It's basically saying, when I read this earlier, that the golden era of streaming is over and we're just going to get advertised to death. How do you feel about this? It's it's funny this, isn't it? When we, saw, we said Netflix were introducing a ad-supported streaming version, we were both a bit sniffy about it, going, it's never going to work. What would be the point of that and all the rest of it? But actually, we may have been wrong. It's actually been quite a bit a decent money earner for Netflix. And you can certainly see it. You and I have talked on, on this podcast before about how Apple is already injecting ads into Apple TV+. Plus, Even though we're paying for it, we still get advertised that terrible film that we, I don't know if we're going to talk about in, in the media section, has been pushed to me. We've been watching other things that get an advert for Slow Horses. Oddly, some things don't get advertised at all and appear on YouTube, but you know they have got that sort of inside the streaming advertising. And you can see things like what used to be called IMDP, IMDB TV, try saying that after really three times really quickly, sort of changed to become Freevee on Amazon. You still need an Amazon account sign up. But these ad-supported networks are definitely seeing a rise. And this article is just saying, yeah, it's working out quite well for the companies involved. 
Yeah, I guess in hindsight, I can see it. So I get Netflix through Sky for free, but if I didn't, I would probably be up for the ad-supported version because I watch so little on Netflix that actually that would probably work out right for me. Weirdly enough, I pay Channel 4 40 pounds a year to remove all adverts when I use the streaming service so I don't get any adverts. But yeah, I guess I'm not that surprised, but they are right. Maybe the golden era of no ads is coming to an end. Yeah, and I think the sort of post-COVID the way work, our consumption of media is changing is really having an impact on these as well. We're all tightening our belts. We've got a cost-of-living crisis. We can't afford to pay for seven or eight or nine or ten streaming services in the UK as well as our TV license for those of us that do that. All of this is quite cumulative. Sky Sports adding the extra thing, Formula One for you, football packages for others. It's an awful lot of money you may spend in entertainment. I've talked on this podcast before about how Virgin Media was costing me £160 a month for the TV and broadband. And that's unsustainable. I, you know, I'm in a fortunate position that, you know, that I can afford to pay for some of these services and not everybody is. And if you're a huge football fan and you get all your entertainment for your family through that and need fast broadband, it, it's really challenging to have that and Netflix and Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and, 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 and that it does become unsustainable. Yeah. And I guess all you're giving instead of money is your time to watch the adverts or just to let the adverts play until you skip. And obviously YouTube's done this for a long time. So I guess in hindsight, not a big surprise. Yeah. So in the article, it says that 44% of people had cancelled at least one paid service in the last six months. I wonder if they'd gone on to cancel two or three paid services as well, because if I had to prioritise just one, I'd probably just keep Disney, I've got to say. Yeah, Disney's... I love Disney from the start, but actually, and I've watched more Disney this week. But then now they've added a load of back catalogue from that company they purchased not long after it launched. Oh, what's it called? Can you remember what the if the end icon is? Because they had like Pixar and Star Wars. Stars, stars, and then and then yeah. they added Star on the end, which is more the adult, less family stuff, but a huge back catalogue. Yeah, and that's um, the stuff they brought from Hulu in the states. I think. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's really rounded out the service. I think. Yeah, like they had a quite a good offering and then they've rounded it out. And also with Disney, you can pay annually and save a couple of months. So I probably would agree with you. Disney would be up there for me. Prime, I'm not that fussed about. Occasionally, I've watched one there this week, but I could dip in and out of it like I did with Netflix. And I barely, t- I personally barely touch Netflix, but I appreciate I'm probably the odd one out there. Yeah, it's it's interesting times for streaming services. And you can see, you know, with the launch of Paramount Plus, which you and I both went, and I'm a big Star Trek fan and I'm good because the things I'm interested in are on Prime and I'm not going to cancel Prime at this point, but I could see it being in the future. I use, I try and use Amazon less and less and less. I will talk about a show that's on there that I do quite fancy the look of, frankly, because it's got a bit of a James Bondy element later and I plan to try and watch it this week. But yeah, as I look at these things, you just think, well, okay, something's got to give. I agree. And I I think I said, said before, I used to get Netflix for one month watch everything I wanted to watch on it, cancel it, and then wait six more months until I got it again. So I, I would either go to that or go to the <coughs> supported model. So I, I get it, especially in the current day and age where people are struggling. Yeah, it does make sense, doesn't it? So what's next up? We've got, I think this was a link you popped in. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I just want to make sure we're still recording. Something weird happened with my microphone there. Yeah, my mute button's not working. That's weird. Let's just take a pause. What well, I'm going to have to break this into two halves. I want to make sure my microphone still works. Hang on, I'm going to stop there. Do you want to, let me make a little note. Yeah, it'll, it'll work. So there we go. So next story was one I picked up that I just thought looked quite interesting. And it's about packaging. And 
there's a whole website dedicated to marketing and packaging and what it means. But the thing that sort of really stood out to me was this article about Toblerone. So I sent the link to you and I'm desperately interested to see what you think about it. I'd love to say I've read it, but I haven't. Well, I've been a bad person. I haven't done my homework. I'm well, apologize. I'm very disappointed, Chris. So I'll just I'll just read a little bit of this straight out of the article. Toblerone has unveiled a new brand story and visual identity redesigned for its iconic chocolate bar to encourage uniqueness in all its forms, empower individuals, and pay tribute to the importance of being stubbornly triangle in the world of squares. Ugh. That is marketing speak, though. Is it the reason they're doing this, though? Is because they're going to start making Toblerone not in Switzerland and therefore can't use the mountains on their packaging that's probably why they're doing this they're just trying to deflect that negativity away it doesn't matter i'm going to keep reading i 100 agree with you to drive strategy visual execu- execution and communications bulletproof distilled the brand's new purpose creating the distinctive call to action be more triangle which informed the development of a whole new brand world this website though which i'm taking the mick out of slightly is called packaging of the world and the toblerone one is the one that just sort of spoke to me because it's something i'm familiar with but if you click the top left and go to packaging of the world and click through any of these things, it's completely full of things like this. Toblerone is just one that I happened to settle on. It's just incredible. The words and the nonsense and the, do they really believe this makes a difference to pick product of choice here? You know, a particular brewery, particular wines, you know, pistachio nuts instead of pistachio nuts. And if you look at pistachio nuts, Pistachio is a new organic snack brand that specializes in high-quality in-shell pistachios. The final goal was to create a product that would stand out on the market, attract consumers who value organic and healthy snacks. Oh my God, it's just marketing gone mad. I've sat in a lot of marketing meetings in my time and deal with a lot of call-to-actions. So a lot of the words I'm hearing, I've heard before. I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but it's just not my world, to be brutally honest with you. I don't want to say, but they have got Godminster cheese on here, which I've got a round of in the fridge right now, which I'm looking forward to having. Well, I'm very excited for your cheese, I must say. But they've got the story there of how they're changing their packaging. I don't want to say on it, but I'm not surprised. The world of advertising is world I don't know. It is amazing. The internal speak you get to, you know, agree a strategy and a decision, I guess, and all the words that go with it. And that's what you pay these big agencies for. Yeah, I suppose so. And I'm okay with a bit of it. You know, the, the, the business speak, we're not trying to boil the, mo- the ocean here or we're just going to slip under the kimono on this one. All that ki- all this kind of stuff, you've heard that. And those of us who live in, you more than me, corporate worlds, but we're familiar with this sort of kind of approach to things. Uh, hey, I've been to university. I, I know how these things go. It's, it's just infecting more and more of the world and it becomes acceptable to say, this kind of stuff. And what you want, I, I don't think this is just me, is it to be very straightforward. You're justifying justifying your large advertising spend. You've got to write some blah, blah. I get it. But I think your average consumer, and actually the average manager inside one of these companies, would probably also appreciate something a bit more straightforward. I completely agree with you. You can get lost in a lot of marketing speak. But I don't know, I'm going to have a tour through the website now because like I said, I've just found a cheese I really like on here and they're, they're going to rebrand. I think I find that interesting, just seeing, I like the evolution of the design. I do not like all the all the words that go with it to justify how they got there and the X tens of thousands they spent to to arrive at the destination. Anyway, it's a fascinating website if you've, if you've got an appetite for uh, seeing how these things get communicated to people. But I thought it was quite a find, actually. 
Yeah, no, it looks good. I've never, never heard of it. No. So, moving on. John Gruber is a, an Apple pundit extraordinaire. He's a website called Daring Firewall, Fireball. We've talked about it quite a lot in this podcast in the past. I'd say in some level, he's probably inspired us to be quite as Apple as we are because he really is a big name in the Apple podcasting world. We've talked before about the sort of pernicious invasion of advertising into operating systems. We might talk about it again shortly with Windows, but this is specifically around Apple adware appearing inside of iOS and it seems to be far worse even than I thought it was when I read Gruber's little article about adware for Apple services here. Yeah, they're going too far with it all, and it's really annoying. I did pop up just the other day in the App Store app going, why don't you turn on notifications? I, was like, I don't need notifications for the App Store, thank you very much. I've got enough notifications. because I'm quite harsh, I turn off a lot of notifications. But I was like, I've not seen that before, and I've seen that a lot more in other apps. As well. I think the TV app popped up as well. I said, why don't you turn on notifications? It's like, because I don't need to. I'll just come to you when I want to watch something. So I'm seeing a lot of that. But obviously this article is focusing on the, why don't you have three months free of Apple TV Plus? Because you've, you've you've just bought a new product. I mean, I, I'm assuming you're going to get it on your phone because you've just bought an Apple TV. Yeah. So I get hints and things like that. Have you thought about this? If you get a text message from a friend, did you know we can automatically add this to your watch queue? Had you seen that one before? I had not seen that one before. Why would I want that? Yeah, I don't know. I think Apple's starting to boundary. So we're back to, you've said a word that might get our clean rate and stripped from us this weekend, and I'm going to say the one that nearly got us before, which is the in-shitification thing. It feels like this again to me, that what Gruber's point is here is we don't see all these ads because we don't tend to install devices from scratch all the time. Whereas if you're a yeah. brand new user to the platform and it's going, hey, have you heard about this iCloud thing? You could back up your passwords. Hey, do you know we do Apple TV Plus? But even you and I are getting little bits of adverts inside the operating system. So I added a card to my Apple wallet. Did not shut up about it. Oh, you haven't finished verifying this. I can't finish verifying this because I'm in the United States. I can't get a text. Please leave your own for three months or three weeks or three minutes. But give me a means to shut it up and go away. And I couldn't. I'd sit and look at the, that big one thing on my phone, which drives me mental. I hate having notifications pop up like that. This is just, it's the intuitification of the platform. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think, I guess Apple are trying to be helpful, but they're not doing it in the right way. And I think they're actually devaluing their brand because you usually point people at Apple. You don't get adverts. You don't, you don't get pop-ups. They're not trying to, you know, do you know, push you to do anything. It's just there is a system that you use like Mac OS. It's not trying to push things up on you and you use it. It's the tools to do the job. Whereas, They've gone the other way with iOS, and it is very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, Gruber's main point with this is, fair enough, you might get something useful to you you didn't know about, fine, make it go away if you get it once. And even that sort of pushing the boundaries as far as I'm concerned. To make you aware of features of your operating system is good. To try and get you to buy things you're already paying for, like I already subscribed to Apple Arcade in this case, why on earth should you see an advert for that? Oh, I completely agree with you. You know what I've got. It's same with... We were talking about Apple TV Plus just now and the trailers it shows. You know I've already watched it. Why are you, why are you showing me a trailer for it? Like, have some smarts around it. Just stop showing ads because you want to show ads. Yeah. Just be a little bit clever. Yeah, we pay, what is it now, £43 a month, £53 a month for the pleasure of having... A 36. It's a 36, okay. £36 a month. I've been inflated American dollars, but brain, I apologise. It's quite a lot of money. I've bought a lot of Apple devices. They know a lot about me, I suspect. They may claim to not know a lot about me, but they know a lot about me. They should be better. I agree. They should They should know more than what they do. And like I say, just have a few smarts around it. That would be a massive improvement. 
It really would. Should we get off the kicking apple train for a second and go and talk about Twitter? Yes, let's go talk about Twitter. So what's going on here? Microsoft drops Twitter for advertising. Yeah, Elon's not happy about this. There's another story that I failed to add to the show notes, but I will try and remember to do so, that Elon is trying to kick back against Microsoft and companies like Apple for going, you know, they've got closed platforms and should be allowing them to do more. But basically, more and more companies are starting to drop out of Twitter. We've seen in the last couple of weeks, some of the big news organizations like NPR in the United States and PBS are not going to do any sort of reporting through Twitter. Microsoft is saying they're going to drop Twitter from its advertising platform. I just think this shows the exodus is beginning to happen from Twitter. Yeah, well, they've rolled the dice. They've made some very poor decisions, and this is the cost of doing it. I mean, I can't. you can't be surprised by this. I mean, Elon can't have his cake and eat it, surely. Oh, but I think he very much wants to have his cake and eat it. And it's, it is fascinating to me how childlike he reacts to these things. It's like, oh, you, you took my ball, therefore I'm going to cry in the corner and tell my, my bigger mates to come and kick you. It's just, it's, it's not a way to do business. No, I think he's completely underestimated what he was getting into and didn't have a proper battle plan of how he's going to turn the company around. He could have turned the company around in a very different way and actually surprised everybody. But instead, it's just, done what everybody thought he was going to do and has ruined Twitter. And I'm curious to know whether there's any coming back from this. Yeah, and it sort of goes in line with Microsoft dropping Twitter, the story I alluded to a minute ago, which is where Elon Musk and the CEO of Spotify have said that Apple have an an unfair market platform that's not sustainable because people aren't allowed to scale. Link in the show notes. Again, this is just, it's not a surprise Spotify feel like this. We've known about for a while that they don't, they feel Apple is the dominant provider on the platform. They know there's lots of Apple users of money. They want to get in on that. We have spoken before that we don't think it's entirely fair the way Apple enforces the rules for people on inside of the platform. And there may be a point here, but I don't think teaming up with Elon Musk to try and get your point over at this point is helpful to anyone. It's not a good look, is it, right now? You need somebody with a bit more credibility, I think. Absolutely. Moving on, I'm still keeping with Microsoft. Microsoft may have to stop bundling Teams with Office amid an antitrust probe threat story from the register. Did you get a chance to look at this one? Yeah, I had a brief flick through this one. I don't really understand why, because most corporations are just going to install it anyway. It comes free with Windows 11. So I don't really understand what this... I don't think it's going to really achieve much, if, I, if I'm honest. I don't know what your, your take of it well, is. I think it's what we've talked about here before is Teams as Teams is fine. Teams with everything else Microsoft embedded within it isn't. So where Teams is a Zoom competitor where you've got a bit of messaging, some video stuff, huddles or whatever the tweet team's equivalent with that is where you can just turn on and have a bit of audio going. It's perfectly fine and within the bounds of the operating system you can see FaceTime is a bit like that, Zoom's a bit like that. It's what Skype did before, I get that. But when you start embedding SharePoint within it, meetings within it, Word within it, PowerPoint within it, whatever else they want to add next, the, the products that we've talked about in this podcast before for more collaborative editing, chat GPT within it, whatever else comes next, then it's not just as straightforward as being as a messaging app. Yeah, but I think that's the other way around. What they're talking about here is you get Office installed, but you don't get the Teams app and you have to go somewhere and download it, which you've had to do for years anyway. And obviously now they bundle it in. Whereas what you're talking about is bundling Office inside Teams. And that doesn't seem to get a mention in this article. So there's, I think there's two things here that are very similar. It's the whole tying, isn't it? And that you get Teams Office, but equally you get Office within Teams. And Microsoft need to start decoupling that a little bit, or at least make it a conscious effort for organizations to put them together. 
Yeah, and you look at the comparison of, I mean, there's another story within the linked register article about Microsoft suggesting businesses buy fewer PCs because it can do more with cloud services and they can charge you more for cloud services and all this kind of stuff. And that's all of a piece. And it speaks to me that there's a strategy going on here for them to push harder into the online world. Because let's face it, the bottom has dropped out. We've talked about Apple's profits you know, declining in desktop hardware as well. That if you push people towards the cloud, the, the, the licensing schemes around them are far more profitable for Microsoft than they are for desktop operating systems or, or client software, because they can up, up, update the website of it. And we, we go back to a more centralized model where they've got sort of more access to those kinds of things. Linux fans will never like that. And in the linked article, a lot of it is talking to NextCloud, who are huge in the Linux world for making an open source groupware collaboration thing that you can run on your own server. So of course, they're not going to be happy with it. And the few German companies that we work with all make use of Nextcloud and OwnCloud for their operate for their internal officing messaging and office systems because they don't trust Microsoft at all. So I find stuff like this really deeply interesting. Yeah, it is interesting, but something that works for a big corporation in the UK is how to wean yourself the Microsoft bottle of milk because it is just so prevalent and for us teams is just included everywhere. And it is kind of for free in your licensing model that is the problem it's not really free i mean i've said it before my my mantra on this is it's fine to get in but how much does it cost to buy out if something goes wrong what is the impact on your business if you do need to step away from it and it's probably vast where all your eggs are in a microsoft basket or an apple basket or a linux open source basket and i'm not saying what you do is wrong i'm not saying what anybody does is wrong but you just got to think of the wider implications of that if you ever need to step away for whatever reason yeah that's going to be horrible for one of a better word i don't think i can get my head around it but that would be like move if we turn around tomorrow and went right we're going to go to google for all our services yeah that there would be a lot of unwinding to do there but it's something we all need to consider from time to time isn't it not every software company is forever who knows what's going to impact the business down the line our next story is also microsoft and that's sort of ticking away in the background as well and it's 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 always in the back of my head that one day somebody at Apple may go, oh, forget it. And you may have another catastrophic keyboard type in you know area where you go, no, I'm never buying another Apple laptop again or, or whatever the thing is that pushes you individually over the edge. And if it's big enough, that affects lots of people. And if it annoys you as an IT director and a few of your other IT directors, you go, no, next time I'm not buying Microsoft, I'm going to go to Google or I'm going to go spin up the open source thing or I'm going to do this other thing that another company has given as a seamless path towards not saying it's going to happen, but I think it's always in the back of your mind that contingency for, contingency for business is a big deal. And, you know, it, as with a university, as with anything that makes a lot of money and you need to think about these things, it's your, your, if your business is contingent on the performance of these systems, who knows what would happen if it goes wrong? If you do have a massive outage, you, if I'm not going to fly British Airways again, that's fine. I'm going to get on the next carrier down the line. But you need to have that other carrier to be able to jump to in the case where it all starts to go horribly wrong. And it's, I always think it's important to think about that. No, I agree with you. Yeah, you need to know what you're getting into because, like you say, the cost of exiting can be quite a cost. And we're seeing that with other other platforms because if we want to leave certain other platforms, there is a massive cost to exit, but yet the, the cost to entry is negligible in essence. So, no, I, I agree with you. Do we move on to the next story? The next Microsoft story. Next Microsoft story. So, I've, I don't know if you'd seen this one way away, but it's back to that evergreen story of Microsoft buying Activision. I put two links in. I didn't really like the BBC Tech one. So, I've included an Ars Technica article about the same thing. But it was just explaining that the CMA have put their foot down again. 
and put a stop to Microsoft purchasing acquisition for $69 billion, oh, which is just an obscene amount of money because they're worried about the lessening of competition in the supply of cloud gaming services in the UK. And it's interesting that the UK can put a stop on a global merger. Oh, it's just, I thought this was all done and dusted and been rubber stamped. I was surprised this was coming back around. Yeah, I thought so too. There's two quotes in the story that I find fascinating. The CMA's de- from Microsoft, the CMA's decision rejects a pragmatic path to address competition concerns and discourages technology innovation and investment in the United Kingdom. The CMA's report contradicts the ambitions of the UK to become an attractive country to build a technology business. That's a hell of a statement for Microsoft to make. It is. It so, is a, uh, my, a big statement from a big company. So you, you, we take another step back to what we were talking about a minute ago and combine that with the UK's current hell-bent decision that two-factor, th- sorry, end-to-end encryption shouldn't be allowed. And you get two reasons that big American companies might go, actually, this UK thing's not working out for us. Bye. Go on NHS, sort yourself out. Go on big companies, sort yourself out, because we can't do business here anymore. Yeah. They could end us like could end up, as they say, being a contradiction that they think they're trying to do the right thing for the UK, but actually end up doing the wrong thing, as you just highlighted. It's a thought, it's isn't good. it? It's and this, good. all this because of Call of Duty. I mean, it's just incredible. A game I barely play, but obviously is world-renowned. By the time this dispute gets resolved, the Call of Duty won't be top dog and there'll be another game, <laughs> game that's taken that spot. Of course there will. But the, the broader point is interesting. that, As you said at the top, it's amazing that the little UK can hold something like this to account. And you look at the big tech bully reaction, which is, well, we're not going to play anymore. You know, and you think, hmm, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Agreed. They go take the ball somewhere else and, like you say, likely to divest in the UK and move their operations somewhere else if it's that hard to do business in this country. Yeah, and at a time where I think the UK is particularly desperate to secure lots of big deals with big global companies, it's not a great look for us. No, nice, awful, isn't it? Awful. Right, AI. First up, we've got a fake AI interview. Did you see this? I mean, this was obviously in my wheelhouse because it involved Formula One, Michael Schumacher, most people have heard of Michael Schumacher, seven-time Formula One world champion. Sadly, being we, well, we don't really know. He's been in some form of coma after having a skiing accident for many, many years and lives at the family home. But the family have, you know, said very little about him and he's never done an interview. But yeah, a German magazine has published an interview in speech marks with Michael Schumacher, which then turned out to be an AI-generated interview, but they weren't very clear about that in the article they published. I can't even believe this was a, this even happened. It just seems bonkers to me. Yeah, to use an AI chatbot to create a fake interview with a noted, well, celebrity, star, driving legend, you know, slightly difficult person to go on with, call him what you like, but no matter what, he's been either in a persistent vegetative state or something very close to it for a very long time now. Poor man, poor family, and to have this compounded by very... Low, low brow tabloid style. It's not. I don't think even the Sun in the UK would have sort of got sunk. To, news of the world, I should say, because they don't exist anymore, would have sunk to this sort of level. You know, to, to pr- produce a story like this, and it it comes back to the dangers of the Chat GPT thing that we've been talking about for a while now. This isn't even that clever. This is just an AI chatbot that decided report. What editor sanctioned this? What what reporter came up with the idea with journalists? What editor approved it? Who let it go to print? It's there's a number of people involved in this. Either they thought it was a genius idea and didn't just stop and take breath for five seconds and go, actually, hang on a minute, it's not that clever. No, But for some reason, they, they carried on. 
No, it's it's just it's a horrifying abuse of power in the sense that power that the journalists and the newspaper that involved have this ability to reach the public in this way, and it gets covered like this. I think it's appalling. Yeah, the only thing I worry is is this just the tip of the iceberg? Are there going to be more of these things, and will harder to differentiate? Exactly, and I don't think it is going to get any easier until we've got a bit more regulation of the sort of. AI, LL, you know, the, 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 we've, we've talked to death the last few weeks about this, but it definitely needs a lot more verification. And stuff like this isn't going to increase the trust in these kinds of chatbots or AI. Yeah, that is the problem, isn't it? It's this, it takes a few more of these and maybe people start shutting it down a bit more. Yeah, and on the same sort of vein, the next story from Ars Technica is that Googlers are saying that Bard's AI is worse than useless and has ignored all sorts of ethics. And these sort of two things tie in very well together, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty bad, isn't it? When Google employees were asked for their opinion of Bard and when they before it was released to the, the wider world, they gave not, not the feedback I think Google were looking for, but they plowed on anyway. And sometimes I think companies like this are better to wait Rather than get in the thick of it, wait and come out with a better product, then launch something half-baked, and suddenly they've gone for the half-baked, get out quick option. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seemed like that when Microsoft put ChatGPT to the front in Bing, and then very quickly thereafter, a Bard appeared, and it, it was like it had been shoved out the door, not even so close to being finished. It wasn't capable of doing a third of the things that ChatGPT was. And now you've got ex-people, ex-Googlers, a former Google manager, Meredith Whitaker in this case, saying AI ethics has taken a back seat at Google and says that if ethics aren't positioned to take precedence over profit and growth, they will not ultimately work. And we saw that firing of a Google ethics manager a few months ago, and all these things seem to be coming to pass, exactly as you said, that they just want to get out there. They don't care about the ethics of it. They don't care whether it's wrong. They just need something competitive in the market so they don't lose their edge. Yeah, I think that's it. It's a shame, isn't it? company like google the reason you've been number one at search is because you got it right very early on and you've maintained it i think with bard you should have wait till you got it right and then release it but i've seen companies do this before it's not a shock no it's unfortunate though because it won't take very much for people to stop using it and it's interesting i was speaking to somebody today who said that yeah you're right google is rubbish from from it, just talking about these things in, in general, about how good advertising and hearing you using DuckDuckGo more, how the search has been watered down more and more, that you can't really even really tell what is an ad or what isn't an ad. So it, it these things begin to snowball quite quickly where you get a reputation of your search isn't as good as it was. The products you're putting out aren't as good as they are. I can relatively easily transfer from Gmail to something else, you know, and you can get a bit of a snowball effect going there. And I just wonder if we're we're seeing the, the tiny little pebble of a ball start to form for Google. Potentially, because they've never had another hit like it, have they? So it will be interesting to see what the future holds for them. Yeah, and, you know, we've got a few stories about Google, and that lets us slide swiftly into the next one, actually, which is Google preventing people from removing location data from photos taken with Pixel phones. So, again, talking about ethics, they're failing on the ethical side of this, aren't they? How can you enforce this kind of stuff on people's own devices? On people's own data. Yeah. it's it's This is just... They're prioritizing their data mining from your data over just about everything else. And you're paying more for the privilege of having a Pixel phone. Oh, really? Well, 
I, I remember what I did a test with the Pixel phone on this very podcast. Top tier phones like Samsung or Pixel, you buy a Pixel phone because it's from the manufacturer, the same way we have done for Apple devices in the past, and you get those updates. But also, you're probably a more committed Google user than your average person. Most people just go and buy an Android phone. It's got, it's got a good camera or it's from a brand they recognize, like Samsung or Huawei or one of the others. You buy a Google phone because you're A, very embedded in the platform, and B, you would hope it would be sort of the pinnacle of the experience of using Android. You probably know what you want when you pick out a Pixel phone. You're not going to, it's going to be less random than just give me the best Android phone, I would suggest. I think you're right because 90% of the time you're just going to go and get a Samsung because everybody else has got a Samsung. So, yeah, you're right. It just seems some of their decisions, like you say, seem bonkers, but. It does feel a bit like Apple with their adverts. They're driving with their business hat on rather than their balanced hat of what does the business need, but what's the right thing to do? Yeah, it's interesting times. And I think Apple and Google are both making some mistakes here that may be costly down the line a little bit. I completely agree. And it's not doing their brand any good. No. Okay, we can flip into the next part of news, which you've helpfully titled hardware. And it's about Google again. Yeah, Google, and they're coming up with a Fold phone. I don't know a lot about Fold phones, but I have seen the Samsung Galaxy Fold, and I was quite impressed with it. But this one, and for readers and readers, listeners that have a look, the screen looks really good on the front of it because it's a nice big screen, fills all the edges. And when folded, obviously it's not in anybody's hand for, for size comparison, doesn't look that chunky. So it looks like a really nice bit of kit. This looks to me what a foldable phone should be. That, that was my view of it. Sometimes I do wonder whether the screen should be on the back and the front and you just have one set of screens that snap together. Because surely that would ultimately be a thinner device because you've got to have two sets of screens on this one. But I thought it looked quite cool. What, what was your, your take? Yeah, so I think it's Huawei make the device you're talking about, which is the screen is a continuous fold on the outside of the phone and you snap it open. So the back of the phone contains the cameras and things like that on, on that side of it. And then one side is always the phone side and you snap it open. So those those types of foldable devices do exist. This particular thing, which is a, it looks like the marketing shots. I mean, it's leaked that badly. It's the marketing shots that have come out. They say that the Pixel Fold is 5.5 inches tall by 3.1 inches wide and 0.5 inches thick when folded. I think that's pretty reasonable, actually. And, and again, it's easy for you and I to fall down the, the thing of the slab of phone that we're used to carrying is the only form factor that matters. I think there's a lot of interest in these folding phones, particularly in things like the Razor Flip, which to me are half the size of an iPhone folded in half. is going to fit better in a handbag, fit better in some pockets, things like that. So I completely understand the interest in these kinds of devices. I think it's quite novel and it is nice to ma- sort of mix up the market a little bit over what we've had, which is a phone is a three and a half inch to seven and a half inch you know, piece of metal and glass, mostly glass these days, that lights up on one side and, and, and you go from there and there's nothing else is allowed within that. So I quite like this. The fact that it's Google, I don't find particularly interesting given all the stories we've just had in them. But again, fair play, they're, 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 there's a potential gap in the market for them here. I think Samsung have obviously done quite well, as have Motorola with these things. I'm sure Apple will eventually announce one because they do eventually get there with these things, but there's still problems with these devices. But this looks interesting to me. No, I completely agree. I think it looks super interesting. The hardware looks very polished. I think you're right. They do look like marketing shots because they are very neat. But I'm really interested. I'd love to see something like this from Apple because I was in London the other day. I didn't really need to take my big iPad with me. I was in a conference all day, but I took it just in case. In case I need to see some on the bigger screen. But I think I've said it, before on this podcast where i use my ipad to do 
everything. I actually find myself doing more work on my iPhone because I'm so used to where the apps and where everything is. You know, the Office app on my iPhone is right the same as what it is on my iPad. So for me, this would be ideal if I'm traveling. I'd probably just take that with me and wouldn't need a bigger device. It's big enough you can sit on the train and watch a movie. You know, I think it looks a really compelling device. And if I've got to take one device with me, how about a hybrid device that's not quite a tablet, but equally a little bit more than what a phone is today. So I think it looks really good. I do think Google have nailed the hardware here. It looks really nice. Even Android looks looks pretty interesting from what I'm seeing. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see whether this comes out and what it's like because Google also meant to announce an iPad-esque competitor as well. They, they pre-announced it last year. It hasn't come out. So assuming it's going to be linked to the same sort of operating system as this. Yeah, I think I do think it's an interesting device. I'm with you. The specs look about right. I agree with you. It would be nice just to have one device if you didn't have to take your iPad as well, your laptop. Uh, stretch, like you say, you could you can get work done on it. The fact that you've got something that is expandable like that, you can use it as a phone most of the time, but you want to kick back, you want to look at that spreadsheet or whatever, it's a little bit wider than that, you can do that. And to be fair to Android, you could actually run something like a shell or Python or something like that on this. I'm almost certain you could because you'd be able to sideload stuff onto it, ignoring all the evilness for, of Google for a minute. I think they're beginning to make some quite compelling devices here that, you know, even us as Apple users are going, huh, hmm, it would be, would be quite nice if we had something like that on our side of the fence. And that's got to be a bit of a worry for Apple. Yeah, it's got to be, isn't it? It does look good. So they're going to have to do something because I guess nobody's leaving yet because they're baked into the ecosystem, but it possibly doesn't take many more iterations of this for people to jump ship price of exit what did i say before <laughs> yeah, yeah fair point maybe this is the exit podcast the exit podcast and in a similar sort of interesting use of technology the second story is from a company called humane who are showing an ai powered wearable and it's from an ex-apple executive called imran Chowdhury talking at a TED Talk a couple of weeks back about an AeroPyro wearable that his startup, Humane, has been developing. And there's a little bit of video of this. It's a bit mysterious. It's basically, I know you're not a Star Trek fan, but you're familiar with Captain Picard tapping the communicator on his chest to talk to somebody. It's that. It's it's a chest-powered communicator, very like a Starfleet comm badge, where it will actually project onto your hand. And in one of the videos, he's shown, he holds his hand over the device and it projects onto his hand, wife calling, you know, from this number. So you do actually get a little bit of a screen with it as well. So you can tap it and you say, call whoever, but you actually get a readout back at the same time. What do you think about this as a concept? Quite cool, but I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. I, I, don't, I, I don't know what it... What problems it's solving? And I get people are trying to find the replacement for the phone and what's the next big thing for the phone. But I wonder, is is there one that's quite like the phone? Because the phone's super convenient. I can take anywhere with me. It's got loads of stuff I can do on it. I can pay for everything. I can keep in contact with people. I take photos. I would probably take my phone less with me if my watch could take photos because I like to take photos when I'm out and about. But where does this sit in my life if I've got a watch? And I've got a phone. Like, do I need a communicator as well? That's the problem I've got with it. It looks kind of cool, but I just don't know what I'm going to do with it. I think that for me, it's the same problem, is that the phone is a well-understood and desirable device at this point. We've just been sitting going, ooh, we quite like the thought of a folding one that makes our existing device a little more pocketable or have a bigger screen on it or when we need it to be and all the rest of it. And this feels like a regression to me. This is like almost going back to a Bluetooth headset. I can't believe you're going to get a particularly good voice signal from something that's stuck to your chest like this. Do you put micro microphones around the edges? What does the speaker sound like? Projecting from a screen onto my hand? Well, that's not particularly convenient when I got a phone in my pocket that I can just look at the screen. So 
they, they're saying that the AI side of this is going to really show what a transformative device it is. But I see this as even less useful than the, the, this potential headset, frankly, because at least I can see some use cases for a headset. I see very limited use cases for this. Yeah, completely agree with you there. I, yeah, I just don't know what to say. I just don't know where this is. Like if, maybe if this came before we had a watch, fine. You know, something a bit smaller, a bit more convenient for maybe notifications. You don't see your watch out, your phone out, but you've got your watch now. So you don't need another mechanism for it. So I think this could have been the in-between product, but now there's a, a watch. I just, just think they're playing too much in the same pool and nearly everybody wears an Apple watch these days. I agree. So, and just, just to throw off sort of the, from the interesting point of view, it's a startup. It's raised $230 million from companies such as LG, Microsoft, Volvo, Tech Fund, Tiger Global, Qualcomm, and OpenAI, OpenAI CEO, co-founder Sam Altman. Hmm. That's some fairly heavy hitters, but again, you look at Microsoft and people like that and you can go, that's them just keeping their options open in case they want to do something. Yeah, that could be more speculative, couldn't it? But you're right, though, there is a lot of names in there. I wonder what they've been sold. But isn't it weird that they've done this pre-announcement at a TED Talk and not... I don't know. It all feels a bit odd. For me, it's the Star Trek link as much as anything else. Because when I was, I don't know, 16, I thought that was the coolest thing ever, that you could just tap your chest and call on Commander Riker to come and beam you up. But I don't think there's a place for it in, in, the, in the current environment of technology. Yeah, agreed. Unless unless we're missing something, I completely agree. Yep. Good. Moving on, we've got a couple of Apple stories. The first one I've got, especially for you, you may have read more of the Steve Jobs books than I did. I've read the first chapter, at least, while I was sat on the plane, and then I started playing with the Wi-Fi. And this is just, Lauren Jobs has put together a playlist of all the all the music that was recommended in that book. So if you did want to have a listen to music as Steve did, and you happen to be an Apple Music subscriber, you can add this to your playlist, and you're able to listen to all the songs that was recommended in the book. Yeah, so I've just added that to my library to listen to another day. So I will give that a listen in the in the car when I commute on Wednesday. I've not read that anymore, the book. I've really struggled because I've been so busy reading everything else. And I've got it so in my head to read paper books at the moment that I don't think of picking up my iPad to read a book. And I think that's where I'm struggling a little bit. Fair enough. I, I looked at the playlist. I haven't added it to my library. It looked a bit Bob Dylan heavy for me. I like a little bit of Bob Dylan. I don't want a lot of Bob Dylan. But it's interesting that somebody's taken the time to put that together and put it out in the domain like that. I always quite like it when you see people sharing playlists like this on Apple Music because you don't see it as much as I did on Spotify side. So, good. Yeah, it's not a big thing in the Apple Music world, is it? I, I don't think so. No, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I always make sure that you have the set in in settings for music so that it doesn't add playlist songs to your library because I'm a big albums person. I don't want random songs just appearing in my library. So when I add a playlist, just want to add the playlist, not not then the the albums behind. It, if that makes sense, it does. For me, I think it, Apple are missing a trick by not having that social sharing thing because it's a huge push in Spotify's growth. Is that I could get BBC Six Music's current weekly album single releases for what A listed or B listed was. How is that not there? It seems bonkers, doesn't it? Because they make it very difficult to do so, and I know that. My kids' school, kid school, because the other one's in university now, they share playlists with each other all the time on Spotify, and it's so hard to do in Apple Music. I wonder, which kind of brings us into our next story. We've got a bit about some stuff coming up in the next version of iPadOS, but there is talk of some enhancements coming to music, so it'll be interesting to see what that's going to look like. Yeah, it would be interesting to see. I don't feel, we've talked about this before, that Apple Music has moved on very far from where it launched. We've got a few more artists in there, we've got things like they do a really rubbish implementation of showing you what 
you've listened to in the last year or in 22 or, or and it is pathetic compared to what you get on other platforms for the way they resolve that to you so they need to do something with music as with so many apple things they seem to get to a point where it's good enough and then they kind of stop and they don't, there's no push for innovation anymore to add things that are new or cool or interesting hey even back in the day what was that network called was it ping oh the itunes social network was called ping yeah ping which went nowhere because it was it was half-butted as its implementation. At least they were trying something new. And I don't get the impression they're trying anything new with Apple Music at this point. Yeah, I think the problem that Apple and some large corporations have is actually smaller businesses are more more agile in developing new features for their apps. You know, often you see a one-person developer develop an app quicker and faster than Apple because I guess Apple's got so much bureaucracy to do so much testing and therefore they move a lot slower. So sometimes that can be crippling. I think music is due a good update. They've got so many music listeners, but yet it just seems to move glacially. I mean, I, I we had lyrics came a few years ago. We've had karaoke mode. You know, there's some odd things like that. The album artwork's now animated. You know, there's some nice little things in there, but there's still so much more to do. Well, don't forget they did classical. I have been using the classical app. <laughs> Classic yeah. pretty yeah, Classic Clap is good. The bit that just grinds my teeth is when it all mixes with my regular music in the Apple Music app. They need to be two silos. Just make that happen and classical will be a lot better. And it doesn't work in CarPlay and it doesn't work on iPad and it doesn't work on the Mac. The whole thing is yeah, again, they waited this long. They should have done another six months and did it properly. Rubbish. Moving on. Apple is apparently going to Sherlock the various journaling apps that are available in iOS. Yeah, apparently we're going to get Apple journaling. And if you'd have said this to me about a year ago, I'd go, nah, we're never going to get that. That's silly. But now they've done the Freeform app and gone after note takers, you can kind of see why wouldn't they go after journaling as well. So I'm not that surprised. My my one thing, though, is, again, like the Freeform app, it came out, it's good, but it doesn't really move on. It would move on better and more and a lot quicker if it was a one-person developer shop rather than Apple. And it's going to be the same, I think, with this journaling app. It's just another little side project. They just won't get the attention. I think they need to do more on their core systems and services and stop the little everything else. So is it good? We used it once and we didn't like it. I have seen one person, a developer I respect on Mastodon, going, my team did a thing with, ever, with uh, what's it called again? What is Freeform. Freeform. And we tried to export it. And we couldn't. Well, it's good. It's gain is the easy to get into, hard to get out of. But I think it was good if you want an infinite canvas, note taking app, probably for yourself, maybe to share with some people. If you're doing podcasts on, I don't think it's the right app because you want a more of a linear solution. But I thought for some of the stuff it did, it, it was comparable to other note taking apps and it would handle lots of media and you could paste things in, which was good. But again, Apple's t- taking their eye off the core stuff they do. And that's what worries me. Focus on the cool stuff. You, you're trying to do literally everything. Yeah. And let's face it, the Notes app does most of that and you can share. And all right, it's a bit less freeform, but I don't think they need to reinvent it for that. Just to follow up on this story, when we're talking about Apple Sherlocking a thing, that's, they used to, there was an app called Sherlock and Apple in Spotlight more or less replaced all the features of Sherlock. I think it's fair to say. It was like a plugin for that find thing where you could, as I'm speaking, I'm doubting myself slightly, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. So when they introduced the features like Sherlock into whatever the app was, I want to say Spotlight in my memory, 
Chris, I'm sure, will Google it frantically in the background and tell me if I'm wrong. But that was Sherlocking taking over another third-party developer's thing and incorporating it into the core product. In this case, journaling, which is the practice, daily practice of writing about your thoughts, feelings, and decisions and more. So this is keeping a journal or a log of what you're doing every day, of which there are day one and other services that do that kind of thing. They're talking about building this into the OS. I don't think this has to be a feature of the OS. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's the same as free form. I think this is Apple. If you've done everything else that he's doing and you've got everybody's wish list done and you fix all the bugs, then go and do something like this. It seems an odd thing for them to be delving into. But I guess knowing Apple and they've got hooks into the system, they'll probably do something a bit more than what everybody else is doing. But I just think there's so much other stuff they've got to do. Yeah, fair enough. Did you did you want to correct me on Sherlocking? Am I okay? I think you're on the right thing, but I think they... They they took somebody else's app and and their version was called Sherlock in a version of macOS way before I started using it. And that's why it was called Sherlock because their thing was called Sherlock. And I need to go and find a proper link for it. I didn't have time to do it. Sorry. Fair enough. We can maybe do that as follow-up for the next episode. On a similar vein, and we are becoming coming to the end of news, we've turned this into a long podcast as usual, is that Apple is well, under examination for stealing tech for the pulse oximeter to go into the Apple Watch, claims the company involved, the company being Massimo, where they poached an executive from them and then built that technology into the Apple Watch. So there is a dispute between the two companies, which has escalated since, and Apple has ended up paying this Massimo exec millions of dollars in shares or, or, or money. So this seems a bit underhand. Yeah, I've seen this sort of thing before, but come work for us. We pay you twice what you're on now and we give you stock and just do what you've done for them because that's our way of getting it and we don't want it it sounds like they started to working with that company to license it and then ended up poaching stuff hmm. i guess we'll keep an eye on it i suppose but yeah it's it's not a surprise it, it, pulse oximetry has been around for a long time i guess it depends on what particular things came over it, this could be a nightmare for any court to unravel and i think the american patent system is such a mess that it's going to be really tricky for anyone to get to the bottom of it it's not a good look for Apple, though, is it, at all? <clears throat> not at all. Not at all. Moving on. It seems I'm getting the impression that there's a lot of discontent coming from Apple developers at the moment. And this was highlighted by Steve Trout and Smith, who we've spoken about before. He's a, an Irish de- iOS developer who, d- who does some extremely good iOS apps and Mac apps, uh, one being Pastel, another being Broadcasts. And he says in a, a toot on Mastodon that alarm bells should be sounding at Apple for the kinds of developers who are fed up enough of the App Store to want to be in alternatives. Apple is at risk of the iOS App Store turning into the same kind of marketplace as the Mac App Store, and we know how quiet it is, bereft of many of the platform's top apps. As much as they might want to blame the EU or lawmakers, it was entirely preventable series of toxic business decisions and lately bridge burnings that led to it. And I think he's absolutely put his finger on the pulse with this. Yeah, he is bang on, isn't he? This is 100% what could happen to the App Store. And you've seen it a little bit with web apps and things already because it is so hard to get something into the App Store. And then if you do, Apple might stop an update or make it harder. So, yeah, please don't go the way of the Mac App Store because I thought when the Mac App Store came out, great, it's going to be like the App Store on iOS. I'm going to have all my apps there. I've got one place to download. I think when I get a new Mac and off I go. But it never t- that dream was never realised because for whatever reason Apple didn't quite get it right. Yeah, I think the sandboxing didn't help, and it's the it's it's the same problem as you have in iOS writ large. 
this time, developers were used to having complete access to all the system if you wanted to write a disk backup tool or have access to something outside of the folder that it lived in or whatever the various sandbox features that were put in with the best of intentions from Apple that they were used to doing on the phone, but that was on the computer, but they won't let you do they'll let you do that on the phone because they were the only game in town to actually get your applications onto the onto a platform that hundreds of millions, billions probably this users had their hands on. On the Mac, people are quite used to going to Store X, downloading something from Panic and installing it on their computer. So they were they were always going to face a bit of an uphill fight, but then to make it as restrictive and pernicious, I think is the word I'm looking for, where you, they could punish a developer for some vague infringement that wasn't properly described. I'm not surprised developers stayed away from it. Yeah, and it's obviously hard to go back and retrofit something. We've all been there when you try and change a policy or, or whatever it may be. It's like trying to get your kids to to do something after they're used to not doing it it's it's like pushing treacle uphill so i'm not surprised in the end i guess the mac app store is more painful than it should have been but let's not have ios go that way it's gonna be really interesting this year around the messaging that apple are going to do on this with the various laws coming into effect how they're going to message it how they're going to try and evangelize developers so it's, it should be a good wwdc which is only what four or five weeks away it's not far away now is it not long at all, early June. I think we finally got through the news. We did. Sorry, listeners, that took a little while, but um, we've just got a quick media section, I think, in games, and then we will be done for this week. We will be done for this week. So, media, I haven't watched an awful lot of things for obvious reasons. I've been travelling. I did manage to download this week's episode of Race Across the World while I was in America, though, and thoroughly enjoyed that on the flight on the way back, even though it was an hour. Very entertaining. I don't know if you continue to watch it. It's a great show. We are watching in my house, but my son loved the concept. We've gone and watched the whole of series one, loved it, fantastic. And then he's like, oh, can we do season two? And I was like, can't we watch the latest one of series three? But anyway, we now started season two and we were just starting to go through that. But it's, it's landed really well in our house. It's a good family show. And my son just loves the concept of it. And he likes seeing who's got how much money and, and where they're at in the race and the geography of it. So I haven't seen the latest one. But I'm keen to because I don't want to find out who wins it and I haven't caught up on all the episodes. So I will try and get there later on this week. Fair enough. I've also continued to watch Taskmaster. The current season of that is excellent. Good selection of comedians. Just makes me laugh every single time. Yeah, I need to get that back on the the beeped version and watch with the family, I think, because that equally landed well. They just thought it was so silly, some of the stuff they were doing. A good family, good family show, I thought. Brilliant. Good. Did you try and watch the new film on Apple TV Plus that we talked about two weeks ago? What, Ghosted that I was really looking forward to? Ghosted yes. that you were really looking forward to, yeah. I was looking forward to it because I wanted something light-hearted and just like a made-for-TV, you know, sometimes you just want a made-for-TV film. You haven't got to think, you just want to watch it. I started watching it. I didn't get very far. It took ages. Like, you all knew the premise. Guy beats a girl, she ghosts him, she turns out to be a secret agent. It was all in the trailer. But yet we managed to spawn out Guy girl for half an hour through a really naff story and it, it, it just wasn't i don't know it just didn't really grab me and i'm really disappointed because i was in the mood for a cheesy action film yeah I'd, i gotta admit the trailers i look quite good and then i read the review and i think i sent it to you from the guardian that morning a one-star review in the guardian drivel stay away and you went oh dear and then you went away and tried to watch it anyway so well you know i'm a big believer in people who got to make up their minds for themselves but just super disappointed with it and i've removed it from my queue i watched maybe half an hour of it like i say it just it was just too slow and just a bit of a naff storyline i think the premise is good but could have been executed much better that's the problem so wouldn't recommend ghosted to anybody 
deeply disappointed. That is a real shame. I have, however, watched Operation Fortune, which is on Amazon Prime. It's directed by Guy Ritchie. It's got Jason Statham in it. I saw it advertised on the side of a bus when I was in London and thought, oh, that looks interesting. I'll wait for it to come out at home. Watched it. And this was probably what I was expecting from Ghosted. Not a five-star film, but not a one-star film. And was a good, for me, a good TV, yeah, made-for-TV film. Good bit of action, bit of funny comedy in it. Not an amazing story. Hugh Grant basically played the same character he played in The Gentleman. But just quite enjoyed it. Pretty good cast, but not a five-star film. Uh, if you just want some action. And it was free. So I was like, brilliant. Because I just thought this was a film I saw on the side of a bus that was at the cinema. So I would recommend it if you just want something on in the background. But wouldn't recommend if you've got a way better five-star TV series or film to watch. Yeah. I also saw it in the side of a bus, and the side of a bus is not often the place I turn to for my film recommendations, I must say. That's fair. That's <laughs> fair. I, I usually like a guy movie, though, so, you know, I thought I'd give it a... And he has got a, he's got a 50-50 batting average, 50% reasonable and 50% pretty rubbish. So, you know, it was going to go one or two ways, and he probably got this one in the middle, I'm going to say. It's not his best work, but not his worst. I haven't watched a Guy Ritchie film in years. And I think, did he do the Sherlock Holmes films? I think he did, didn't he? Yeah, and I've never seen them. I quite enjoyed the first one of them, and I quite enjoyed Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels back in the day. I felt no compunction to go back and watch it again, though. Uh, I've enjoyed watch. I have watched it more recently. Just quite enjoyed it. I enjoyed some of the script in that film. I thought some of that was very well done. And it was interesting at the time, but obviously, yeah, the world has moved on. It is on Prime as well. I think Lock, Stock, they seem to have bit of a partnership with Guy Ritchie because a couple of his films have come out on Prime in more recent years. Yeah, I was about to go down a rabbit hole of Prime paying people to not make films and TV shows because I know about the thing with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. She'd been paid something like $50 million and there's been no production out of anything out of any of her collaboration with Amazon. But that's that's a story for another day, I think. Sticking with the Amazon Prime thing, I quite like the look of Citadel. Link in the show notes to Citadel as well as link to the Guardian review of what Citadel is. It's kind of described as a a absur- absurdly fun spy thriller and the way the Guardian re- reviewer says they give it four out of five and they say it's televisual crack so a Bond film featuring oh gosh I've forgotten the actor's name already that's terrible he's in Game of Thrones he was in oh, no my brain is gone anyway he's terrific Richard Madden there you go it did eventually come back to me Richard Madden who is terrific in most things that I've seen him in The Bodyguard was the other one that he was in on the BBC same producers as Line of Duty so I have a lot of time for him I think he's really good he was good in the war film as well 1917 even though he had a only very small part in that as most of the actors in that film only had a very small part so anyway good trailer it looks like a lot of fun it looks a bit cheesy I'm up for it and I'm going to try and watch it in the next week okay well then I'll see I can do at the same time but yeah it looks good it looks like it's got a good cast and four out of five stars so i'll take that as a, as a recommendation not that i get all my film reviews from the guardian it sounds like it in this podcast but i do like elsewhere too has got a stanley and i never can pronounce the last name tucci tucky Sta- stanley tucci yeah tucci so and i, I listened to his audible book recently his biography it was very good so i would watch it for a bit of him he's terrific he is terrific yeah i agree uh last one's with you last one's with me so for some reason it came up that True Lies is free to Apple TV Plus people. It wasn't for me. Anyway, it was free on Disney Plus. So I went and watched True Lies, the film from the 90s, Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. And, oh, what's the lady called out at Trading Place? Her name is escaping me now. Anyway, I went and watched True Lies. I hadn't seen True Lies in 20 years because I wanted the cheesy action film, which I thought Ghost was going to serve for me. Jamie Lee Curtis is the lady's name that we're both thinking of. Sorry, it just popped in my head. And so I went 
watched True Lies on Disney Plus. And you know what? It was cheesy, amazing 90s jokes in it, but actually stood up pretty well. The quality on Disney Plus was very good. And I, I really enjoyed it. So that was it. Just to say that was what I went for my cheesy retro. That's a great film. It should have been a Bond film. Jimmy the Curtis. Could, could have been a Bond film, definitely. Could, definitely could have been a Bond film. Very good. James Cameron, obviously. I did notice that there's a True Lies TV show on Disney Plus as well. I think that's why it came across my radar. I've got no desire to go and watch the TV show. It's also got Art Malik in it, who was in the Living Daylights Bond film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. Oh, uh, is that it for media? That's it for media. Lovely. So games, I only played one game this week. I played it on the flight because on the way back, particularly when I was knackered and not sleeping, and it's Kingdom Rush Legends. It's link in the show notes. It's a terror defense game. For those not familiar, terror defense games are you have a certain amount of baddies that are going to march across the screen on a particular path and you can build towers in, in places around the map stop them progressing they get harder and harder the waves get stronger and stronger you only get a certain amount of money and i've loved the kingdom rush games they've all been excellent right from the st- right from the outset it's like command and conquer but you can't move your troops around quite so much so it sort of fills a tactical need in, in my brain and they're quite compulsive and it's free on on the apple arcade store as well so it's a bit of a win-win as far as i'm concerned check it out kingdom rush legends I might recommend that to my son. He's been playing a tower defense game, Balloon Tunes Plus or something. I can't remember. It was on Apple Arcade, but he seems to love that game. So I might send that his way. Yeah, I played Balloons as well. Balloons TD6, I think, is the one that's on the on Apple Arcade. That sounds about right. I just had to approve his in-app purchase for it or whatever it was. But um, it, he, he seems to enjoy it. Yeah, that, I find that one a bit hectic. This is also hectic, but it's a bit more tactical i think than balloons where you just put monkeys around the edge to pop the balloons i prefer kingdom rushes it's got a nice art style too i think the hectic hecticness is the appeal for a nine-year-old if i'm honest fair enough my brain's not that fast anymore you also have a game i spoke last time around gran turismo 7 i think i mentioned this on the podcast if i didn't there's a recent update out with a couple of new cars but it also brings you can put it in 120 fps mode and what I want to say is I tried this out, but the quality's rubbish. You could barely read the names of the cars in front. And it was it, I just didn't enjoy it at all. It was super quick, but I prefer the quality, I think. So for me, I'm going to turn it off. And that's probably why it's not a default setting, because it does worsen the performance. It doesn't speak highly of the graphics card on the PS5, I must say. We, I think basically you can either have performance mode or quality mode. You can't have both. And I'm guessing that's what the PS6 is going to have to do is work out how they can deliver both because the, the 5 can't do it. Yeah, that's not... I don't think that... That doesn't fill me with hope that we're going to have a good console generation. I, I've seen that Microsoft are struggling a little bit selling Xboxes and Sony are doing okay. Certainly the trouble getting PlayStation 5s for a long time during the COVID times sort of may speak to that a little bit. But that's slightly concerning down the line. Yeah, I think there are a lack of titles for the PS5, though. They're like must-buy PS5 exclusive titles. I think a lot of titles are on the, the 5 and the 4, so the need for the PS5, I think, is a little less. Mm. And obviously, yeah, VR headset's not done it for you. Not yet. I've heard really good reports about Gran Turismo 7, but I can't justify it at the moment. Listeners, other games are available for the PlayStation. Yeah, not in my house. <laughs> Threes and play and Gran Turismo Seven, and that's it. I'm a kind of I'm a you know I'm a, yeah. It's it's like when I, when I got married once, and I'm very happily married once. I'm the same with my games. I get married to a game, and I, I and I stick with it and see it all the way through. You buy lots of new Macs and iPads, though. Yeah, hardware is a bit more ephemeral for me. 
<laughs> okay, so when the when the PlayStation Eleven comes out, you're still going to be playing GT eight, nine, ten. Yeah, quite possibly. I I, I can't explain it. I, I don't have a time of games to get into, so I pick very few. I guess I really enjoy the ones to get into. On that side note, I did play Portal on my Switch. Portal on the Switch. I mean, it's just Portal. It, it was on sale, but it is made for that console. I'd imagine Portal's also very good on your Stream Deck. Steam Deck. Or Steam Deck. Oh, I got the name wrong. I won't let it. Steam Deck, sorry. But it's just perfect on that handheldness. It just felt really cool. So I just enjoy walking it through. Do you get a gyroscope on the Switch? Remind me. Yeah, but I never use it. So part of the demo when you buy a Steam Deck is the gyroscope for the Aperture Desk job sort of game that comes with it. It's a ridiculous game. You finish it in 15 minutes. But it shows all the controls on, on the Steam Deck. And actually, that sort of first-person perspective, when you move it rather than sort of moving a joystick or something like that, works really well with the gyroscope for something like Portal. You can be surprisingly precise as you sort of move it around and point it at what, you, what it is you want to hit with. I think I'm too used to using the, the sticks. You're old, man. That's what it is. I'm an old man. Moving um, on. It. Moving on. I've got a very swift app of the week to recommend. It's going to be very specific for people in my situation. Went to Boston, wasn't entirely trusting the cellular networks or trusting the Wi-Fi networks, as we've spoken about in this podcast before. I could have used ExpressVPN, which is fine for what it is that I use it for, but specifically, my Ubiquiti networking equipment has a product called Wi-Fi Man that's free to download from the App Store. First glance, it looks like all you do with it is you're able to chart the signal in your in your network, so you can see if you've reached all the corners of your house with your placement of your hotspots. But actually, buried in it is a VPN app, you can click into that, you can turn it on, and you actually get a WireGuard VPN connection back to your house. It's all properly networked, specifically for your iOS or Mac device. It works super well. It was super efficient. I felt rather well defended by the thing, and it's just worth a shout for the Ubiquiti Wi-Fi Man app. Yeah, I can understand that. I often use ExpressVPN, which is a subscribe service, but I can see why you would use that. Yep. And it's great. It's included in, in, your, in your setup. And that's it. Very quick, as promised. Thing of the week. Thing of the week. So I've controversial one this week, I think. Um, so I've gone for an app and I've gone for Microsoft Teams because I think actually Microsoft Teams, A, I live in it in my corporate life, but B, with the couple of recent updates in the last few months, Microsoft have ticked the two things I wanted them to do. So point one, they've just done CarPlay for it. So that I can be in my car. If I've got a meeting coming up, I can just go to the app on CarPlay, tap on the meeting and it will join me into the call so you don't have to do anything you'd have to pull over use your phone to join the meeting before you get back on the road so it's done really well i'm surprised it's taken so long because apple's calendar has been in carplay since about ios 15 so a couple of years now um and the other thing they've done is they've got some picture working now on the ipad and on my phone so if you're in a team school and you swipe out of it your camera stays on you get a preview up in the corner and it uses the picture in picture framework that's been in ipad os and iphones for a little while now and i just think they finally ticked those two things that Actually, we're just my two little bugbears because obviously I don't use it on a PC. The other thing I want ticked off is iPad to be able to use my camera on my screen, and then I don't. I can have everybody on the big screen, but that's not Microsoft's fault. That's an Apple problem because you can't change your webcam on the iPad at the moment. But I think Microsoft done a really good job, and the updates keep coming. You know, they're updating it little and often, and this is kind of what you want from Apple when we talk about the journaling app and the Freeform app and the music app. Why can't they do that? Just get little and often updates out and start ticking off some of these big, these bigger things. And that's what we're not seeing from them. Fair. Uh, glad your recommendation. It's not one I'm going to endorse, but I'm glad that made those updates that you're happy with. It's just great to see a big corporation doing little and often updates and ticking off. Like I say, it's two pretty big features. 
Fair enough. Good stuff. Anything else? No, I think that's it. So end of the show. Hey, and if anyone wants to get in contact, please reach out at Mastodon Rod G5 Maniac at Mastodon.scot. I am at underscore CJP at Mastodon.social. And you email us at wakefromsleep at protonmail.com. Talk to you next week, Chris. See you next week. Thank you.